lads and I spoil you's rotten all together. There you are, sitting somewhere abroad. You may even be sitting in Ireland, what do I know? And all of a sudden, the weekly podcast that you expect in your feed of a Saturday has turned up again. A bonus episode, if you will. It's Philip O'Connor here coming to you from the little studio in Stockholm with a bonus episode of the Global Gale podcast. I wasn't planning on bringing you this one midweek and then I had a conversation with this gentleman and he mentioned a relevant fact to do with the 2nd of February, which is uh, when I'm recording this and when I'm going to put it out. And that is the fact that it is James Joyce's birthday. Now, the reason that that is important and that that is in any way relevant to this uh, particular podcast is that the man I was talking to at the time is John Francis McCourt. And John Francis McCourt has done something as strange as become the top dog, the chief bottle washer, the head honcho at a university in Italy. He is an expert in all things English literature and in Joyce and in humanities. So I caught up with him there last week on Zoom for a little chat. And I was kind of trying to work out because there's a few people I've interviewed now and there's everything from sport coming up to voting rights for those of us abroad. So there's a lot of exciting episodes coming up soon enough. I was kind of working out, where will I time this one? Where would be the appropriate place to drop this into your ears? And then John said to me, well, the 2nd of February is Joyce's birthday. And I went, okay, that doesn't fit in with the regular timeline of this podcast. But you know what? We don't have to. This is not the radio. This is not the television. We don't have a schedule to, to follow. So we can do these things whenever we like. So I've got to go ahead and do it. Remember that this is a, a community podcast. In other words, it only exists because you do. Uh, try to help keep it going by going to patreon.com forward slash arrowman in Stockholm. If you can sponsor it there for a five or a month, there's this podcast, which comes out about four or five times a month. Irish in Sweden. There's the Arrowman in Stockholm podcast. There's the Premier Swedes podcast. And there's whatever else that comes in to be head and i'll tell you the amount of stories that are turning up now lads from irish people abroad in new york and in australia and that kind of thing in the beginning when you start doing podcasts like this it can be hard to find people to talk about stuff and then it grows and then you talk to somebody like alan gogarty that we talked to last week in new york and then that leads to another story and another story and another story and in the end you have like you know six weeks of plans ready to go there so you never know you might be getting a few extra bonus podcasts in the weeks to come because i don't like to sit in these things as soon as i talk to people i like to get them out so that is indeed what I did with John Francis McCourt in Italy. And sure, here he is. John, am I right in saying that your official title in the university there is Rettore? Is that the correct pronunciation? Rettore, but if you want to give me my full title, it's Magni- Magnifico Rettore. Magnifico Rettore, that sounds very fitting. But would you mind explaining to our dear listeners what that actually means, sir? Well, uh, Rettore is somebody who's the equivalent of a vice-chancellor or the president of a university. Mm-hmm. And um, Rettore is someone who literally holds up the whole structure on his shoulders. That's the idea. Uh, That's a so, big job. <laughs> it's a big job, yeah. It's an it's an interesting it's a job I never thought I'd find myself doing, to be honest, because um, in Italy the system is you're voted by your colleagues and by all the staff of the university, so it's competitive, and um, you're voted in for six years, and um, yeah. So I was very much a first in that it's always in Italian. So I think I'm probably the first that they've ever had that's not Italian. So it's been an interesting challenge. I know it's probably better to ask them than ask you, but I've got to ask you anyway. Why do you think they chose you for that position ahead of all the other fantastic Italian academics, I'm sure, working at the university there? 
Well, I there was another candidate I who was looked like if she was a shoe in, and I felt we should have a, a debate about the future of the university. Our university, Machabata, specializes in the humanities and the social sciences. They're very much subjects that are, you know, having a hard time in these times of STEM and engineering and medicine and all that, all both of which are extremely important, but so are the humanities, so is philosophy, so is law, so is literature. Uh, so I just decided that I wanted to kind of uh, be a spokesman for those subjects. And um, I think the, the people who voted for me voted because they want to kind of open up the Italian system, which is famously closed. Like there are brilliant Itali Italian academics around the universities of the world, but the Italian system is, find, is find, it seems to find it really hard to bring in um, people from abroad to work within their system. And I think that's a limit to the current university situation in Italy. So the whole policy is to try and turn a, a, a small, a good, but a somewhat provincial university, 10,000 students, uh, to give it a more European dimension, to give it a more international dimension, and to work on attracting students also from abroad. So I think they just wanted a change. And a change they and a change they got when they when they elected you there. Just before we go in, into the actual work that you do, um, you touched on this subject already. Why are the humanities so important? Because as you mentioned, it seems to me that a lot of universities are saying, "Okay, we'll invest in things that will become the next Facebook. We'll invest in things to make batteries smaller for cars and that." Why are humanities so important? Why is poetry and philosophy and literature so important to study? Well, because the humanities are what help people to think and what make people think. They are the study, they are the subjects that help you to, to get a kind of a critical capacity with which you can take on life. And um, I believe the university should prepare people, form people to for life. They should also form them, of course, to get a job professionally. That's also very important. But the humanities bring in the human dimension to all of the problems that we're living with now. Climate crisis. Yes, the sciences will hopefully provide some solutions. But in the meantime, we've got to live with what climate crisis means. We've got to have it explained to us. Literature can play a huge role in that. Even poetry can play a big role in that. Psychology can help people deal with the changes that are going on. Um, and, and very often, you know, I was talking the other night at an event where there were lots of people from the sciences. Um, that, you know, these big companies, these big American, you know, multinationals like YouTube and Amazon and those, when they need to solve a problem, it's not the scientists that solve it. The top end of things where you need a, a bit of creativity, more often than not, we're talking about bringing in a philosopher or, or somebody who's got an expertise in literature just to give that extra bit of, bit of spark maybe to, to a discussion or to find, to invent, to imagine a solution that maybe then the scientists can turn into something concrete. Um, where did you discover your love of humanities? Because you're well known for your love of Irish literature, your, your expertise in that. Is that something you had with you from a young age? I think it is. I mean, I always wanted to teach. I always thought that was a worthwhile way to spend your time. And um, when I was in school, I started to read a lot of English, a lot of Irish poetry, particularly W.B. Yeats, believe it or not. Um, and I just, instead of studying when I should have been maths or, or sciences, I was studying English, English literature to, to death, really. Um, and that led me to go off and do degrees in, in English literature and history and, and, um, and, and focusing on Irish literature. And um, I just feel that these subjects are so often just really under pressure within the overall systems. Governments don't see an immediate return in their investment in the humanities in the way they do 
you know, in the sciences where you might be, the research produces much more practical, immediate solutions. But universities aren't only there to be immediately useful. People need time to actually think. And the great ideas don't come very often in, you know, in, in, in the kind of conveyor belt way that we're supposed to produce research now. Scientists, philosophers have, have, have got to have time to think, literature people, in order to interpret a book. You need to wrestle with it. And, um, you know, what you write mightn't be useful this week or next week, but it might well be useful in 15 years. And I, I also dead, really believe that the role of, of culture, you know, we're all into the digital age now. Everything has to be digitalized, which is great. It makes things safe and it makes them available to huge publics. But we also need people who are actually capable of reading our our kind of uh, what we've we've inherited, you know, from the past, the manuscripts, archaeology, these kind of subjects. You, you need a Greek, the language Greek itself, which, you know, in so many countries isn't taught anymore. And yet it's at the basis of our whole civilization. So these subjects are, are really needed because they're at the base of what it means to be to be European on one level, to be human on another level. Uh, it's a bit of a curveball because it's not something we discussed prior to this conversation, but uh, recently we've seen artificial intelligence being used to write stories and to create images. And indeed, when I go into Shutterstock, which is where a lot of uh, photographs are, can be licensed to that for, for websites and for social media, that they're now telling you, OK, we can generate something in AI, which I absolutely don't want. You know, um, Is that something that you've thought about? Because it will have some sort of an effect on literature and on how we communicate. If you can just you know put your ideas into something and it spits out, you know, an academic essay or a blog post or a positioning paper. Is that something that you've thought about in, in your academic uh, life? It's terrifying, isn't it? It um, really is. <laughs> but all it can spit out is what, it, what we collectively as humanity have put into it. Mm. So it can't really invent anything that's new. I mean, artificial intelligence can be useful, I think, at times, but it can't really be original. Um, I mean, you dread to think, what would a James Joyce have done if he'd thrown half of those words into a, into, into a mixer? What would artificial intelligence have done with that? I don't know. I think it's dangerous. It's certainly dangerous for us in education. I mean, you know, in theory, a student can, can throw into the mix what they want and out comes pieces at the other end if you click the button. Um, that's, that's problematic because it's not helping people to think or to reason or to be critical. So it needs to be. It needs the. It needs to be accompanied, I think, by a huge concern, philosophical concern, which can only come from the humanities to try and monitor it in some way. Because we end up otherwise being run by machines. We're already partially run by machines. All we have to do is see how our phones react, how our how our Google feed reacts, how our Facebook feed reacts, to know that you know we're not. It's not. It's not a. It's not a free for all out there. It's, we're being we're being steered in certain directions, and I find that very worrying. Hmm. I do love these uh, do your own research people who sort of think that, you know, everything that they come up with, they come up with by themselves and it's a process of reason thought and that they're in no way susceptible to algorithms or to peer pressure or to social uh, mores or anything else like that, you know, and it really Absolutely. is, as you're saying, the humanities that you learn how to think about those things. Um, you mentioned, and we both mentioned uh, your interest in and your love of Irish literature. You mentioned James Joyce there as well. As Irish people, we love to think that we are at the forefront of literature in the English language. When you zoom out a little bit, sir, is that what you see? Are we really as influential as we think as Irish writers? Um, I somewhat think we overestimate our, our importance. Um, I, I think partly that happens because our neighbours across the water are not enjoying a particularly glorious mo moment when it comes to literature. I don't think they're producing a lot that's wonderful. Um, we have a lot of very good writers. Um, and good poets. I think we, we have a generation of poets who are dying off sadly now who were 
extremely important. You know, the Heaney, Derek Mahan generation. Um, and then going back further, obviously, back to Beckett as one of the greats. How many of the current crop will we be reading in 100 years? I don't know. But the fact that you become a media phenomenon like Sally Rooney probably doesn't mean you'll be read in 100 years. So there's an awful lot of marketing behind a lot of it. That all said, I think in, in, within, within the novel, James Joyce is a figure renowned around the world who has opened up a territory for the novel that, or territories for the novel that were just not there before him. He changed the novel into this massive container of so many different things. And equally, Yeats is a bit of a star for, for many writers who follow him. Um, he's still very relevant. He's, he makes you uncomfortable at times because a lot of his politics is not very nice. Mm-hmm. But the, the, the amazing creativity at the heart of it is, is certainly there. I think it is good. We do read. We do seem to read a lot in Ireland. We do seem to sell more poetry pro capita than other countries, and that can only be that can only be a good thing. I wonder, uh, you know, as 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 um, as we go on, and the younger generation who you know are on Snapchat and and what have you, you know, their their capacity to actually stay with a long difficult novel. You know what what Yeats called the fascination of what's difficult. Um, you know, it's everything is so readily available now. You know, the, the taking on the Ulysses, you know, and the, the, the months that it takes to read that, that doesn't seem to go with the pace of life as people lead it today. In any case, I've gone off. I haven't entirely answered your question. I think there's a lot of good stuff going on in Irish literature, absolutely. And we're dealing with a lot of stuff from our past in the books. Um, it's, it's a kind of a collective therapy, isn't it? Um, where various issues are trashed out in, in novels and poems. And that, that, that's a good thing. I think it's a very welcome thing that those discussions can be had, sort of, you know, we can look back on things and and try to sort of process them and move on together. Uh, you mentioned Sally Rooney there, who's very popular now in her own lifetime, and maybe that she won't be read in maybe 100 years. Joyce was kind of the other way around. I mean, he probably wasn't hugely popular or successful in his lifetime. What is it that makes him, and again, you know, this for an academic like yourself, this is a very sort of lowbrow question. Why is he so important? Why should we still read his books today? Why should we use, you know, can we understand Ulysses as just regular readers and consumers of literature? Yeah, I think Ulysses is accessible to everybody who puts in the work. It's an acquired taste. I wouldn't deny that. It's difficult, but you don't have to get every single word to understand it. Just like, you know, Sometimes you listen to difficult music, symphonic music, you don't really know what it understands, and yet in some way it moves you, it, it affects you, it makes you, makes you think, it makes you feel. Uh, Joyce is capable of doing all of that in his, in his writing. He's a brilliant chronicler of ordinary life. I mean, that sounds very basic, but it's true. Of what it meant to be alive in Dublin in 1904, of what life was like, so it's a chronicle of the times, it's a critique very much of the times and of the limits of that Ireland. And I also think it kind of presents a vision of what the Ireland might be like in the future, uh, what it, it some, to some extent became a little bit more open. You know, the difficulties of Leopold Bloom, the outsider who's mistreated by, by the Cyclops, the citizen, you know, who's Jewish at a time, you know, when Europe is heading into the anti-Semitic horribleness that we, that we lived through in the Second World War under fascism and Nazism. I think Joyce saw a lot of that coming. The other thing about a great writer, they seem to become relevant again and again through new themes that emerge over time. And Joyce seems to be able to be mined by new generations of critics. And not all writers can do it. Very few writers actually can, can resist that. Very few novels can actually stand up to a second reading. You know, you read certain novels, you read them once and they're grand. They're easy consumption. But try and read through it again. And you go, Jesus, why did I read that in the first place? Yeah. Whereas when you read a novel with the density 
and also with the fantastic sense of humor that Joyce has. Um, you know, and every time you read it, you, you pull out different things. At least that's been my experience. Also, as I get older, I, I see it in an entirely different perspective. First, maybe as a young fella, you know, through the eyes of Stephen Dedalus, I might have identified with him. Now with Leopold Bloom, now I've gone beyond Bloom, well beyond him, sadly. But, um, you know, more middle-aged viewers. So, yeah, he's a writer who invents himself, over, reinvents himself over time. And for sure, he wrote a lot of things that made for uncomfortable reading in the Ireland of his time. And um, he knew that. He was playing a long game. Um, and, of course, he was reviled in Ireland. He was reviled for being anti-nationalist, anti-Catholic, and um, <clears throat> he was those things. Um, but he knew more about Catholicism than most of the Vatican put together. He was incredibly well-read, so he actually knew what he was talking about. And um, he was he was anti-nationalist in some, in some sense, but he's a hugely Irish writer as well. I mean, there's yeah. something very patriotic about the way he writes about Dublin. I mean, there's love of his city and his country there. I think he tried to write his books to try and change the country. It's it's kind of weird that way because you know we always criticize you know with oh this is a terrible place and it's dirty dirty Dublin etc cetera, etc. Cetera. But if anybody else from outside criticizes it, we go mad. You know, what was the last thing that that book revealed to you after having read it several times? I'm still halfway through my first reading, which I started about twenty years ago. Was there something that recently revealed itself to you that surprised you about Ulysses or about Joyce's writing in general, John? Well, I think all I would say is, I mean, I've read it, I've been through it very many times over, um, and with different groups. Um, I did a reading recently, 18 weeks, with the group that tuned into the Irish Embassy in Rome once a week uh, for 18 weeks. Everybody finds different things in it. And I, what I find is that I, I once really liked the really Irish chapter of the Cyclops, where there's the Nationalist Against Bloom, Irish politics. I found that fascinating. Then I had a period where I really liked the Sirens, which is the music chapter. Uh, now I really like the chapter towards the end, uh, the second last chapter, um, which is um, Ithaca, the going home chapter. Uh, it's told like it's a, either a catechism or a book of science questions. And it's just extraordinarily funny and deep and rich and uh, complex, I suppose, and in other ways very simple. Um, and you have to figure it out yourself. I, I like the books that allow me space to actually think. It's not just mm. spoon fed. And I consider I keep seeing that. I keep getting surprised by Joyce's prose. You keep getting caught out. It's amazing after all these years, you know, probably you know, a hundred years on, and it's still doing that to people like yourself who've read it several times. And Absolutely. I'm still I'm still struggling. You may get an email off me soon enough now going, what on earth was he on about there? You know, if we go back to your uh, your university career there in Italy, because I don't think you didn't study abroad during your undergraduate years, did you? It was it was oh. after that, after you graduated, that you yeah. you spread your wings and started to attend the finer seats of learning in Europe. Where did you go to first as your career? took? Oh, I started in UCD. Um, I was I did I did my BA in UCD. I did my MA in UCD. And then I moved to Italy, and I, but I still did my PhD in UCD uh, through correspondence. It was pre-internet, so I used to send chapters home in a brown envelope to Gus Martin, who, who you probably remember from um, the books that we studied in school, the soundings and the exploring English. He, Indeed, he yeah. Um, I, if I was back again, I would have tried to study in other places as well, because I was in college when Erasmus started, hmm. which was about 33 years ago, I think. And I remember one person in my kind of group who said she was off to Berlin for six months. And ages that we were, we all went, oh, she wanted to go to Berlin for UCD is great. And uh, she was the only one who had the, the sense about it, of course. And um, now, thank God, I mean, it's one of the great things about Europe and, and the 
is the Erasmus. Like it's a brilliant opportunity to go somewhere else. I moved to Trieste um, when I was around 25 and I got a job there, started to work there. Uh, I never went back to, to Dublin. I, mean, I, I tried a couple of times to go back to Dublin. I went for various jobs. I'm not sure I could go back to Dublin now. I've been out too long. Mm. But um, I think I had a, a very interesting life as a result um, in, in and around Italy. First Trieste, then Rome, and then Machiavata. In um, Europe, they're very different places. Italy is, you know, very variegated. The north is one thing, the northeast is one thing. Rome is a world unto itself, and the Marche region where I am now is is another beautiful, fascinating region about which until seven or eight years ago I knew absolutely nothing. So it's been all, you know, discovery on the way, which is great. So despite so half a lifetime in Italy, a little bit like Ulysses, you're still discovering new things about it in the new places that you visit. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, this is a region of lots of... It's the only region that has a plural name, Le Marche, the, the, the marches or whatever. And um, that, that just speaks to the fact that it's full of different areas, different cities, different histories. It was, a, it was a, an area that was one of the papal states. So there's that whole lair there in the background. There's lots of art, lots of literature. Leopardi is from here, the great Italian poet. Uh, Rossini, the composer, up in Pesaro. Um, you've got you've got Urbino, um, you've got Ancona on the sea. It's it's the Conero. It's, it's it's just a very rich, rich and beautiful part of the world, really. Do you find academia in Italy very different to Ireland? I know you mentioned that you know you don't have maybe as many international colleagues sort of climbing the tree, so to speak, in Italy. But do you find the attitude towards the humanities, towards learning, towards hierarchies within that? Do you find that very different to Ireland? Italy is a very hierarchical country. I mean, now that I'm the Rettore, all my colleagues called me either Magnifico or Rettore. Um, they would use that title. I mean, my friends would call me John, even, but most people have switched to Rettore and, um, or Professore. Uh, in, in, in Dublin, I'm sometimes surprised that undergraduate students would call their, their professor John. Like, you just wouldn't do that here. And if I said to a student, call me John, I'd be making him or her uncomfortable. You, you just much, wouldn't do that in Italy. It wouldn't be acceptable. Just wouldn't do that. No, there's much more of a of a of a gap. But it's more old fashioned, maybe in some way. It's, there's a bit more distance. I'm not saying that's a bad thing necessarily. By the way, um, I, I think there's probably arguments in favour of both of both both ways. The system here is much more based on um, oral exams. So nearly all the exams here are oral. So you you study your course with your professor, and then you come in and you interrogate it essentially for. 20 minutes or a half an hour, and you talk about subjects on the course. So you have to be pretty good on your feet. The Irish system is much more based on a written approach. As you know. That sounds absolutely frightening, having to go in there and sit down in front of the Magnifico Rettore or similar and be grilled on your subject. I mean, that's that's a little bit too close to the Christian Brothers for me. And this, the students think it's all right. They, they would prefer to do that. That's what they get in school. And the, the word they use in the Italian school system is interrogazione. That kind and, of speaks uh, for itself there, doesn't it? I mean, a lot of, you know, kids have gone through that. And by the time they come to university, they're used to it. And, you know, we're not Christian brothers at the university. We do all we can to kind of help them through. But, yeah, I can imagine how, uh, you know, it can be intimidating. I think there's, there's, there's an argument in favour of, of mixing it up. Some written stuff, some, some oral stuff. I think that would be good. Um, because I don't think you get to develop your oral skills. But not that the Irish are stuck for oral skills, but that you get to do your, you develop your oral skills in an Irish university system. It's all very much written. 
and very often corrected not by the people who taught you but by, by other examiners and that's not great either people here like to examine the person who taught before us yeah I suppose it's probably a little bit fair because when I left Ireland and I moved to Scandinavia in 1999, the school system here is obviously completely different and there's much more continuous assessment and it's by the yeah. teacher that has stood in the classroom. So they know what you know and they know mm -hmm. what you don't know and if you're a bowsy or not. And it kind of seems to be a little bit fairer than sitting down and writing an exam that, as you say, is going to be corrected by somebody else. But, but and, even going back to school, no, I think the whole Irish leaving cert is nuts because it just puts all that pressure on two weeks of your life yeah. to perform. Uh, what the Italian system is like, what you said, it's much more based on continuous assessment. I yeah. think it's a bit fairer, you know, it, it can suit the strong and the weak a bit better. Yeah, it's, well, it certainly would have suited me a bit better because I managed to get a job in uh, during my leaving cert and went off to work and didn't bother with the economics exam. And I'm disgusted to this day that I failed it in the leaving cert. You're on the record as saying, sir, that you dream of a global university. What do you mean by a global university? what I said. Um, <laughs> Somewhere along yeah. the line. I pieced these quotes together for things that you said when you were elected. <laughs> local rather than global. So local, think, yes. So global yeah, and think, local. Yeah. So, I mean, the university here in, in the, let's call it, you know, not in the capital of Italy, in a small city of 50,000 people like Maturata, the university is a key role in the community, organizing, um, for example, arts and cultural events, sustaining them, Working with the opera house, working with the theatres, economics departments, working a lot with local businesses, doing organising doctoral programmes that are that are going to work with, like, for example, here we've got Simonelli, which is a big maker of very advanced coffee making machines for restaurants. So we're very much embedded in the local community. We try and, you know, respond to the needs of what future employers are looking for here. So, for example, they're often looking for people trained in languages, but who also have a sense of the cultures of the languages that they're learning. So, hence, they do a course in what we call Mediazione Linguistica. So, it's linguistics and it's culture and it's languages. Um, but at the same time, I think our, our students who come to a small city in Italy or maybe already live there, I think it's good for them to be in a university which has connections abroad where the professors are going abroad and measuring up against, you know, their colleagues in other universities, where our research is not just of local interest, but is, you know, is, is part of an international debate. And the Italian system tends to be quite self-sufficient. And I'm not saying it's not of a very high standard, but I think it's, it's good that we work within a European context. I'm a big believer in, in, in positive things. You know, we've just connected into a, into a, into, we're connecting into a European University Alliance, the European uh, Reform University Alliance. There's eight universities together, funded by the European Commission. And the idea is, you know, to, to have even more student and staff exchange, to set up joint degree courses between maybe Maturata and Cariwi, for example, or Cologne and Maturata, or the University in Warsaw we work with. That's that's all going to help the students to grow up in, in with a sense that their their home, at least as far as I can see, is Europe. You know, like you and me. You know, we were Irish, but we've made our homes around Europe and feel very much at home. I think in the, in the world that we've moved to, and um, I think that's a good model. I think Italy needs to up its game and be able to make Italy a home for people who want to move there as well from other European because they could only they could only help the country. You know, would be a, a force of modernization as it has been, for example, in Ireland and Dublin. Yeah. 
there's a, an expression in Swedish where you talk about inviting somebody in with your elbow. So rather than with your outstretched hand, you're kind of pulling them towards you, but keeping them away at the same time. What's it like for international students in, in uh, academia or indeed international uh, academics who come to Italy? Do you find that, you know, obviously you found that maybe doors open for you, that, but are people welcome there? Do they want to hear an Irish, a British, a Polish, a German perspective in academia? And has that changed in your time there? They do want to hear the perspective, but they don't want to necessarily give the, the holder of that perspective a full-time job. <laughs> I mean, my, my career took forever to get off the ground. I started out as a language teacher in a private school, and then I became what we call a lettore, which is a language teacher, a language assistant, which are always non-Italian, very badly paid, but still to this day very badly paid, and often in contracts that are not permanent. So I went through all of that. Um, and then you go into take part in public competitions where very often there's a lot of local candidates with local professors supporting them. So I found that very hard to just to break through all of that. And, and, but I mean, I did in the end, but it took me till I was 40 to actually get 100% into a pensionable job. And that, and that meant moving, moving city as well. So it wasn't ideal. Um, but it, it can be done. Uh, it is done. Uh, I think it needs to be done more. I think it would be good for the Italian system if it opened up a little bit more. Um, it, obviously, you have to speak Italian, I mean, that, and that's fair enough. I mean, yeah. it's good Italian. Um, Italians are struggling with English and, and doing, you know, they, 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 they have come on a lot. We offer at the University of Macerata several degree courses taught only through the English language, uh, also with a view with an eye to foreign students, international students, uh, courses in economics and law. And, and, and tourism studies uh, because I suppose because there's there's a market for that and, uh, and that, that's where we can grow because one of the problems in Italy is that there's been a collapse in the birth rates and so you know the population is dwindling as it is in most of Europe and um, you know that's a problem for the universities They're, you, you don't want to end up fighting over the, the recruits yeah I suppose, and, and if you do end up fighting over them, you want to offer them things, you want them to be mobile, you want to be able to give them something that they can't really get elsewhere. In That's terms it. of in terms of that younger generation, John, um, you mentioned earlier on a little bit about the, sort of the YouTube generation and the lack of an attention span and that kind of thing. I also find that we can learn a lot from them because, you know, they don't put up with any sort of nonsense. What They, they know what they want and they want it very quickly. Now, we have to coax them maybe to spend some more time on things. How, if you look back at your own time in UCD and compare that to the students who will be walking through your courtyards today, um, how are they better and what do they need to improve on, would you say? They need to, I mean, I think when I was in college, you knew... There were very limited places to go and look for the information that you needed. Hmm. So you went to a book or a journal or an article that had been recommended in a scholarly publication. Um, nowadays, we're bombarded with information from everywhere. And I think sometimes students struggle to see the difference in terms of whether information is dependable or reliable or not. Hmm. Very often it's not. However, they are extremely good at gathering information. Like this year, um, I taught a course on literature and climate. Um, of contemporary novels and I was very busy it was an MA course and I gave a lot of it over to seminars which were done by the students in English and you know I got them to read the novels and prepare the powerpoints and do the presentations and they were brilliant they dug way more out of the novels than I on my own could ever have done and you know I encouraged them I tried to steer them a little bit and then I gave them some feedback and I had given them an input like you know 30-hour course, the first 10 were listening to me going on. 
But, you know, I'm not sure as at that age that I would have been able to get up and, and give a presentation like they're able to get up. Partly because maybe the material wasn't there. Partly because I wouldn't have had the confidence. Um, so that's very positive. And, um, you know, that they were well able to do that and learn autonomously. I mean, you know, the, we have to get beyond the days now. We have so much available where, you know, it's about a professor or a lecturer standing at the top of the room and laying down the law. That doesn't really cut it anymore. You have to engage your students and you have to let give them a voice. It has to be an informed voice, so they have to have done their homework. But if, if that is the case, then I think we can use them. Um, and just one final question, because your, your thing is literature, your thing is writing and communicating and that kind of thing. What do you think of, of the writing of, of the students and indeed, you know, the writers that we see in our bookshelves today? Is there anybody, or you don't have to name names, you know, that do you see a Joyce coming out of the bushes? Do you see poets that are going to take over from who will be quoted by politicians the way that Heaney is now? Or, or are we in a situation where, you know, we're into moving images more now. You'll see on TikTok and Instagram that video and audio is becoming the, the sort of the medium of choice for young people. Are we still going to be reading at all in, in 30, 50, or 100 years? Well, I'm a bit of a dinosaur in terms of reading. I mean, I, you and me I, both. Am, I am on Facebook and Twitter and stuff, but a lot of it's just very inane and you're preaching to the converted all the time. Whatever way they work, I just seem to get people to agree with me all the time. Or on another feed. Um, I think there's been a boom, certainly in Italy, in the number of people buying and reading books since COVID. That's, that's absolutely the case. So I think people are looking for, for stuff to read. Very often, people are just too busy to actually engage with the book. It's not that they don't want to engage with the book, I think, really. I mean, I've experienced this since I took on this job. I can sadly count on two fingers the number of books I've read since, since November. Uh, there just isn't the time there. Um, yeah, I'm pretty convinced there will be figures that will last down through time. I'm not going to hazard a guess as to who they are. I'm pretty sure we'll be reading James Heaney in 100 years. Um, I'm pretty sure we'll be certainly reading James Joyce. Um, of the Irish ones that I've read recently, um, Sarah Keegan is very impressive. I really liked her work. Um, and there are some poets there that are, that are good as well. Um, I mean, literary destiny is so hard to, um, to imagine, you know, and uh, it's the same in music. You know, so many great composers who didn't quite make it and they fall off the list of, you know, of the, of the greats. John Field, the Irish man who invented the nocturne. A few people know about him, but I mean, in his day, he was up there with Chopin. And, uh, you know, and now he's not, he's not on the field at all. Um, so it's, it's very cool, but I mean, he's not gone entirely and maybe somebody will... We'll, we'll rediscover him. I mean, John O'Connor and other pianists have play him regularly, but um, you know, he's not he's not as regularly on the part of the repertoire as, as some of the other figures. So it's it's funny. I mean, I actually believe that critical work, academic work on these writers is part of what creates their legacy. You know, it's not that the writers don't manage it all on their own. They sometimes need somebody. The James Joyce, without the French initially, who championed them. Then without the Americans in the 50s and 60s and 70s. And now in the last 20 years, a lot of Irish critics. Without all those critics, he would not be the figure he is today. That's not to downgrade anything that he did. But sometimes it needs it needs interpreters, it needs promoters. Well, I think that brings the conversation nicely back to where we started. It brings uh, it, it needs people who have time to read books and who have time to sit and to think about them. And I will thank you very much for taking time out of your day uh, for talking to me. Uh, John Pascoe, thank you so much indeed for your time. Thanks, Philip. I really enjoyed it. Yeah, lovely to talk to you.
Well, you know, don't you tell us what happened, I told you. Every telling has a telling, and that's the he and the she of it. Look, look, the dust is growing. My branches lost, you have taken root, and my cold chair has gone ashy. Hello, hello. What age is that? It soon is late. Tis endless now since I or I one last saw water hoses clock. They took it asunder, I heard them sigh. When will they reassemble? Oh, my back, my back, my back. I'd want to go to Aixlipane. Jesus, I know how he feels, lads. That was James Joyce reading from Finnegan's Wake. Um, one of the more difficult books in this world uh, to read. Bit of a stream of consciousness and stuff going on there, but... Um, as John Francis McCourt was saying, it's essential, sort of, you know, it's important that uh, the humanities exist and that we give them the time and the effort and, and that kind of thing that they deserve. I've been trying to read um, Ulysses for years. I found Dubliners, which uh, much easier to read and a very entertaining book and a very enjoyable book and something that certainly said something to me as an Irishman and as a Dubliner myself. Listen, I will let you go. There's going to be another podcast on Saturday, right? Take it easy now. So within about 48 hours, the next podcast will be out. And it's a fascinating conversation. I'm wrestling with myself here if I go to tell you who it is in advance. I'll tell you what, I'll tell you who it is, right? It's uh, an Irish boxer who boxed at the Olympics in 1992 and won a silver medal for Ireland named Wayne McCulloch, who, Wayne is from the Shankill Road in Belfast, represented Ireland pretty much throughout his amateur and professional career. And I spoke to him recently about about his life, about growing up in Northern Ireland. And it was one of those subjects, we got into the Northern Ireland part of it. You know, sometimes you think that people are sensitive about talking about that. No, no, exactly as he was when he was a boxer, Wayne just went straight into it. And I have to say, I found the conversation fascinating. That will be out on Saturday, boys and girls. So uh, until then, take care of yourselves. Take care of one another. Get yourselves down to the library. Get yourselves onto your Kindle. See if you can find a bit of Joyce and see if you can find a bit of joy in that or in the humanities or in reading or taking it easy with a nice cup of tea and I'll talk to you again very soon indeed take care <laughs>